If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn in it or turn it on to Isaiah chapter 1. We are going to bounce around a little bit this morning. It's all going to be in the book of Isaiah, but if you start in Isaiah 1, you'll be in the right spot. And then if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 566. We noted last week, just to kind of back up for a second, we noticed last week that Christmas, at least in our culture, probably largely because of marketing efforts, is kind of viewed to be a time that Christmas is supposed to be happy, it's supposed to be upbeat, it's supposed to be a time when there's a lot of smiles, you know, and all of that. And I'll be honest, I'm very attracted to to that kind of a Christmas. In some ways, that would be my desire, that that's what Christmas would be, that that's all it would be. Yet, we talked about last week that in contrast to what our culture seems to say Christmas should be all about, that the Advent season that we're in, this process, this journey, this time of waiting and preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus the first time, that season that we celebrate, based on the words of Isaiah chapter 8 verses 21 and 22, that really this journey isn't about happiness and smiles as much as it it really starts in a place of despair. It starts in a place of darkness. That's kind of where the, the journey begins. It's not necessarily fun, but, but that's where it begins. And the thing is about that despair, the thing is about that darkness, is it literally is a lasting thing. It wasn't just something that Isaiah talked about and then they kind of moved on. See, Isaiah wrote those words in, Exodus, or in Isaiah chapter 8 roughly around 720 B.C., And 750 years later, at 30 A.D., when Jesus was walking on the earth, most of the Jewish people were largely convinced that the the region of the Galilee, the land, as Isaiah calls it, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, they were so convinced that part of the world was still incredibly dark. In fact, in, in Jesus' day, everyone figured there was nothing, anything, nothing good could ever come out of the Galilee region. The Apostle John in his gospel tells us that in chapter 1 and again in chapter 7. It just, it was a place of despair. It wasn't just an event that happened. It was this ongoing despair. 750 years later, it was still going to be that way. And yet the irony is, where did Jesus grow up? Where did Jesus start his public ministry? In that region. You know, part of me wonders, why is there a contrast between what our culture says about Christmas and the Advent season? I also wonder, why did the Jewish people, when Jesus was on earth, think that the Galilee was this way, this place of despair? And yet Jesus seemed to look at it differently, or at least seemed to want to make it different. Why why is there those contrasts? Why is there those differences? Maybe before we can even get to those questions, though, we need to back up and ask maybe a more fundamental question or a foundational question, and that is, why the darkness? Why is there darkness related to Advent? Why is the Advent season noted that way? Why? Well, to answer that question, I ask you to turn to Isaiah 1. And one of the things that strikes me about Isaiah also strikes me in some ways about the entire Bible, is that the more time you invest in reading the Bible, I think what you'll discover, I think what I've discovered, I think what a lot of people have discovered, 
is that God reveals things in His Word to really answer a whole lot of big life questions. We don't always know what those questions are, but one of those questions that we need to answer, one of those things we got to work through is God really wants us to know why there's darkness. God wants us to know why there is despair. In fact, I think that's exactly where Isaiah starts his book of prophecy. That's what God inspired him to start with. So if you'd look with me at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We're not literally starting at the beginning. That was kind of an editorial statement in verse 1, but verses 2 and 3, the message kind of begins. And Isaiah wrote, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, the expressed audience in those verses is referring to the heavens and the earth, but I think we realize ultimately God's message is meant to be towards His people. It's meant to be towards the people that would read this from that point forward. To zero in just on one word there, the word children I think Isaiah chose somewhat specifically. The word children is a word that really would take us back to the story of the Exodus, to the God literally reaching into the nation of Egypt and taking the people of Israel, getting them out of slavery and bondage. But not just doing that, but God then taking them into the into the wilderness and God providing for them and protecting them and caring for them for 40 years and then God literally putting them in to the promised land. God doing all this work, God being actively engaged on their behalf for their good to make them a nation. They were His kids that He cared for and He did all this stuff so they could have life in a land flowing in milk and honey. And you say, how did they respond? Well, they too were active. Their response to God was incredibly active. Their response to God was to actively reject Him. To willfully reject the authority of God, to to run and turn away from that. My kids have told me numerous times, as have church members, as I've been a pastor now for a while, Lloyd, you say a lot of obvious things. Yeah, I do. I'm going to say something really obvious right now. You may want to write this down. Rebels always think they're right. Pretty obvious statement, isn't it? I mean, would you rebel against somebody if you thought you were wrong? I don't think so. We rebel because we think we're right. But I'm not sure that God would necessarily say, hey, you're right if you rebel against me. God would say, you're really not that smart. I mean, I think part of the message of verse 3 is that to rebel against God is prime evidence number one that you and I are not nearly as smart as we think. What what is the comparison that goes on in verse 3? Well, it says that oxen and donkeys kind of understand life. But what does it say about us? What does it say about people? It says, we don't really get it. We don't really understand. 
Living without God, living in a way where you choose to walk away from submission to God and throw that away and go and do your own thing is really not a good approach to life. In fact, I think if you and I approach life that way, it is the exact opposite approach to what we would want to do. So why do you say that? Well, look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. I think to underline for us that a life of rebellion to God is wrong, Isaiah says, hey, let me be very specific. Let me use some certain words to kind of give you a contrast between what you were supposed to be, what God desires you to be, what God has made it possible for you to be, and what you've actually become. If you zoom in and look first at the word nation, that word is used, that exact same word is used in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6 when God calls the people of Israel, after He's redeemed them from Egypt, He's got them in the wilderness, they're going to moving toward the promised land. That's the word God used to say, you will be a holy nation. And yet, what were they? A sinful nation. The word people is the same word that David uses in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he prays for the people. And he is in this great prayer of thanksgiving to God, reminding himself, and since we have a copy of what he prayed, reminding us that these were people who were redeemed, that God had set them free, that God had done all these amazing things for them, and yet what are these redeemed people now? They're laden with iniquity. They were set free, and now they're back in a prison, so to speak. They're back in bondage. The word offspring, that is the word that was used in Genesis chapter 12 when God made all those promises to Abram, who we better know as Abraham. Promises and blessings, and yet what is describing these people? They're not blessed. They're the offspring of evildoers. And the word children, again, takes us back to the Exodus. God did all these things, and yet what are they? They're children who deal corruptly. The people were so incredibly far from what they could be, what God had offered them, what God had made possible for them to be. They literally went away from that. As the verse says, they forsook God. They had forsaken Him. They turned their backs on Him. To forsake God means you and I literally try to distance ourselves from God. We try to get away from Him. Instead of heeding the command of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, when God spoke through Moses and said, Seek God, they said, Forget it. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing. You know, there's some things in the Christmas story that make me scratch my head. I know it may seem odd that we have the Magi here, but they're connected to that promise that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And these Magi, who we would understand as pagan people, saw a star in the sky 
and they had some measure which we've got to seek that. We've got to figure out what does that mean? And so they traveled by camel roughly somewhere between eight and 900 miles on the back of a camel seeking this, knowing there's something there. And yet the religious and spiritual and political leaders in Jerusalem couldn't find them in, it, in themselves to travel 10 miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They just didn't go. When they should have sought God, they rejected Him. So let's go back to that question. Why the darkness? Why the despair? Maybe the quickest way to answer it is because of guilt. Because we are guilty of rebellion and treason against God. Part of the Advent journey includes us recognizing our guilt. Now we mentioned earlier in the service and we started it with Jan Smith lighting the candles. The Advent candles. And we said, hey, this is the second Sunday of Advent. This is the Sunday of peace. This is the day when we remember the promise of God to send the Christ child to be born in Bethlehem. The promise that led the Magi to go and seek Him. And so far, all we've talked about is guilt. It's kind of like, when are we going to get to the peace part? Because none of us really like being told we're guilty. So when are we going to get to the good stuff? When are we going to get to the peace? Or maybe another way to say it is how do we, if Advent includes us being guilty, how do we get from guilt to this peace that this day is supposed to be a part? Well, what I want to do the rest of our time is just ask you to sort of take three steps with me, sort of a path of three stepping stones to look at how God can exchange our guilt for His peace. Stepping stone number one is simply this. God wants to address our guilt. God literally wants to address the guilt of your life and of my life. I want you to look down just a little farther in Isaiah chapter 1 to verse 18. The verse reads this way. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God, in essence, is inviting the people into a discussion. He's saying, Let, let's talk about this. Let's have a conversation. Now, we do need to understand the word reason there is sort of like a code word to say, um, mm, God knows there's a problem, and He's going to address it. Uh, he's not going to avoid it. He's not going to say it's not there. He's going to deal with it directly. You see, here's the thing. We need to understand. God knows our lives way better than we do. He's incredibly attentive. He's all-knowing. So he knows that you and I are guilty of rebellion, that you and I are guilty of treason. You say, Where, how do you know that? Well, how does he describe us? He describes us as scarlet and crimson. And I recognize some of you may have football teams you like that are those colors. But biblically, those colors are the colors of guilt. He is making a declaration. He is saying, I know exactly who you are and what you're like, and you are guilty. But here's the amazing thing. I mean, you think about it. If God is who the Bible says He is, so God literally is the judge of all, and God knows that we're guilty, we're guilty of treason, it's probably no surprise that He knows, hey, you're guilty. 
So in one sense, that same, pointing that out from the verse isn't really rocket science, like, wow, that's really impressive. But what I want you to understand about verse 18 is God doesn't just draw attention to our guilt. Okay, God doesn't just say, you're scarlet, you're done. He doesn't just say, you're crimson, you're, you're, I'm going to get rid of you. He doesn't say that. What God is wanting to communicate in verse 18 is, I don't want to draw attention to your guilt. I want to address your guilt. I want to deal with your guilt so that you go from being guilty to pure innocence. So that instead of being scarlet, you're white. Instead of being crimson, you're like wool. I want to redeem you from your guilt. I don't want guilt to be the epitaph of your life. I want to give you this incredible thing. I want to address your guilt and in exchange give you a transformed life. I want to do this amazing thing in you. We need to understand that if the Advent journey involves our guilt, it's not because God says, I want you to stay there. It's because God says, I don't want you to stay there. I want you to go from there. I want to exchange that to my goodness, to my peace. Now, there's there's more on this journey that we need to get to, but before we do, I just kind of want to take an aside, so to speak, and and just kind of talk a little bit real briefly about sort of an implication out of verse 18 that kind of flows, I think, into our lives right now. I could be wrong on this, but I'm, I'm reasonably confident that none of us like being caught doing the wrong thing. Too many of us like to do the wrong thing, but we don't like it when we're caught. We don't like someone to find our, you know, the, our hand in that proverbial cookie jar. We don't like that. Adam and Eve certainly didn't like it in Genesis 3, and as they say, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. So we probably don't either. So what do we do when we get caught Well, because of pride and other things, we like to blame, we like to deny, we like to rationalize. Those are often our responses when someone causes, you know, when guilt. You know, we have an ex, you know, when the police officer pulls us over, we have a really good reason why we were driving twice the speed limit. You know, we do, don't we? We think we do. We don't like to be caught. But here's the thing. Our excuses, our reasons, never really address the guilt. They never really deal with the guilt. We might be able to pretend there's not guilt in our lives, but as one of my friends has told me, um, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. So you can put it aside for a while, but it's going to come back. And you and I might get really good at hiding guilt, hiding it from everybody else. But what about right in the core of who we are? Please understand something about God. God doesn't want any of us to live with lingering guilt. Even if that guilt no one else knows about he still doesn't want us to carry it god addresses guilt because the best thing that can happen in your life and in my life is to have our guilt addressed to have it dealt with to have it purged 
That's why God has given us the incredible gifts, I believe, of conviction, of confession, and repentance. Are you opening and using those gifts? God doesn't want you saddled with guilt. Advent, at least in part, is a declaration of God saying, be free of your guilt. Let me address it. Let's be done with it. So I want to ask you very quickly just some what I'd call reflective questions. Questions maybe we need to ask ourselves. Real quickly, three. Do I want to address my guilt? Do you really want to address your guilt? I mean, are you really enjoying having guilt or do you want to address it? Question number two. Are you, do you ask for conviction? Do you ask the Holy Spirit to make you so sensitive to His voice that He convicts you of your sin? Not to beat you up, but to let you deal with it, to let it be gone. Maybe the third question then flowing out of that is, are confession and repentance habits or practices in your life? God doesn't want us to play games with our guilt. He wants us to experience His peace, not our guilt. Confession, repentance, conviction are really gifts from God so that instead of us having guilt trapped to us, it allows us to, in that sense, let go of our guilt. And God says, here, I'll take your guilt. Here's my peace. Gift number one, stepping stone number one to getting from guilt to peace is God's going to address it. God's going to address our guilt. Stepping stone number two, and if you want to turn to Isaiah 52 with me. The second stepping stone is, is God has good news. Part of us going from guilt to peace is that God has this incredible good news. Now, I don't think guilt is something that would be called a good thing in that sense. That Oh, guilt's a wonderful thing. I've... I've actually been called to jury duty the week before and after Christmas, which could be really exciting for my work life. Um, clear, jury duty, I'm not there as a criminal. Just wanted to verify that, okay? Just in case, sometimes we don't always communicate as clearly as we should. But I've never seen on a movie or on a TV show or on the news, a defendant being all excited, they just said, I was guilty. Yeah, high fives around. And I don't think, and I don't know this, I don't think judges get Christmas cards from defendants saying, judge, thank you for getting me locked up. You know, I don't think that's really how it works. We don't want guilt. It's, it's not a good news. But part of the wonder of Advent is that though Advent exposes our guilt, and it does do that, it also says there's really good news. Even though you've got this guilt, there's still good news. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. 
who publishes peace, who, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Okay, guilt's not good news. Guilt's not a good thing. But God says, for guilty people, I've got good news. And you say, well, what is this good news God wants to communicate? Well, it seems like he says there's good news, and then there's three phrases. Most likely, it's somewhat debated, but most likely the first phrase there, publishes peace, is kind of the overarching message that God's trying to communicate. Here's the good news. Peace is possible. You may be guilty, yes, but I'm going to bring this incredible news of my peace. It's possible for a guilty person to become whole and complete. It's in, you can be that a part of your life. You say, well, how can that be? How can I, if I'm guilty, all of a sudden have peace with God? How does that work? Well, the second two phrases we think maybe describe how God does this. Now, it's poetry, so the order is maybe not sequential, but he uses the word there, publishes salvation. It's a declaration that part of the good news is that God's going to do something. He's going to send a Savior. God's going to save us from our sin, from our guilt. He's going to do that. And then flowing out from that, then God begins to do this work in us. And, and the, the version of the Bible we use is, you know, the good news of happiness. The word happiness isn't there, but the idea is it's sort of good, that God's going to do this thing so that our lives can be described as good instead of guilt. Now, that doesn't mean everything in life is perfect. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that the tenor of my life can be changed. That instead of me having this struggle with guilt that I have to try to hide and put a facade on and, you know, kind of be back here and only let you see a part of me because my life's really bad. No, God says you can have a whole and complete life. It can be on display and it can be described as good. God says, I want to exchange your guilt for my peace. I want you to have my peace. And folks, that, the Bible says, is incredibly good news. News we should get excited about because I don't have to hide in the corner anymore. I can be forgiven. My guilt can be gone and God says, I'm going to move in your life. The last year or so, the expression fake news has become news. And unfortunately, there seems to be enough fake news that we're very doubtful there actually is good news. We're kind of, every time a news story comes out, it's like, okay, what's the real story? Because that obviously can't be the real story. We have become more skeptical and more cynical. Thank you so much. That's really helped us as a nation. So you can be saying, well, the Bible says it's good news, but is it really good news? Can I have any confidence I'm going to experience good news in my life? I want you to think for a second about our three friends over there. Who put the star in the sky that led them to Bethlehem. Or another way to say that, how does verse 7 end? Your God reigns. The good news is possible for you and me because of the Lord Jesus. 
because of who God is, because he reigns and rules. Another quick implication. Paul the apostle is going to quote from Isaiah 52, 7 in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15. Paul believes that the good news of Advent, this incredible good news of what God offers, should encourage us and remind us because this is the good news of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul uses that to say, hey, you need to share the story of the good news. A fairly significant spiritual truth we need to kind of let our lives be shaped by is that people are not going to know the good news unless somebody tells them. If you and I aren't sharing the story of the good news, no one's going to know it. No one's going to hear it. And so part of the thing I want to remind us is we need to be sharing that good news. We need to know what the good news is. We need to share it. And so I want to just sort of a commercial for one of the classes. 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we have a, a number of elective classes. And if you're not sure how to share the good news, you're trying to understand how do I share the good news, one of the classes that's meeting, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the good news, us understanding it, us being shaped by it, so we share it. Now, that doesn't mean don't go to the other classes. If you went to one of the other classes this week, wonderful. But if you didn't go to a class, I've got a chair waiting for you. Because, folks, people are not going to hear the good news unless we share it. Stepping stone number three. God says he's going to address our guilt. God says he's got good news, but how does that really mean we go from peace to guilt or guilt to peace? Stepping stone number three answers it because God sends the Savior. God sends the Savior. The, the critical step in this exchange of you and I going from guilt to peace, God's taken care of. Okay, he literally sends the Savior who is going to deal with our guilt and in exchange give us God's peace. Read with me maybe just a page over in Isaiah 53, now verses 4 to 6. And if you're using the Pew Bible, I forgot to tell you, this one will be, I think, on page 614. These may be familiar words, but they're hugely powerful. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We didn't read verse 3, but verse 3 ends with basically Isaiah saying that this suffering servant, the one who's the being talked about here is acquainted with grief and sorrows and the word surely in verse 4 makes it very clear yes he's acquainted with griefs and sorrows but the thing is it's not his own griefs and sorrows he's acquainted with it's ours Isaiah is saying uh, hint hint nudge nudge wink wink all those things the exchange is taking place He's taking our stuff. He's dealing with it. 
But as verse 4 ends, it kind of makes it clear we don't quite get that. We're assuming it must still be on Him. It's His issue. It's His problem. Verse 5 kind of offers us a corrective, kind of get the right perspective to see this exchange. Using four different images, this one who is going to suffer is taking our stuff. It becomes on Him. We benefit. He suffers. I want you to zoom in just on the third one there. The third image, the chastisement. To chastise someone is to, is to punish them to bring correction. An amazing truth that Advent points towards is that the servant who we know is the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus was punished for a correction. But it wasn't His correction, it was for our correction. So that He was punished so that their correction took place so that you and I would receive what? Peace. God exchanges our guilt, puts it on Jesus so that we receive His peace. He does this exchange. See, the one who the wise men, the magi saw was the one ultimately who would climb on the cross. And this incredible exchange would take place. God would put our guilt on Him and we'd get His peace. Verse 6, really in some ways, kind of a summary statement, reminding us we rebelled, we walked away, every one of us. But God said, I'm going to exchange your guilt for my peace. It's an amazing, amazing thing that God did for us. That Jesus was willing to come and experience that. You know, to go back to the questions I asked at the beginning. I'm not sure that I can give you a totally great answer on why our culture is so much about the smiles of Christmas and Advent doesn't really get there very quickly. But that's your homework. You can try to figure out the complete answer to that one. But what about that question about why the contrast between what the Jews thought of the Galilee region and what Jesus thought and what Jesus did? You know, the Jews in part were right because as they looked to the north, as they looked to that region, they said, it is despair. There's been so much there that's not right and not good. And that's true. And they figured those people must be incredibly guilty. And in one sense, that's true. They are guilty. But what they didn't see, but what Jesus saw, was the reality of Advent, the Advent reality that Jesus was coming in that region where it was so dark to bring the light of the Advent reality that God was willing to exchange our despair for His hope, our guilt for His peace. Folks, it would be my prayer that this Christmas season, this Advent journey, 
for you will be filled with the Advent reality of this incredible exchange that God has for us. I would pray that you and I would be like the Magi and we would seek the one who's offering us this incredible exchange. Let's pray.